Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. One of the things that's really important to us with the Art Center is to use uh, use performing arts as a way to open up much larger conversations. And Holocene's is a perfect piece to uh, to really bridge all of the different sides of the university here. Uh, physically, right now, it's in the very center of the campus, and to be at that crossroads, I think, was very important to us, uh, symbolically and physically, uh, because it's a piece that really brings together uh, very inventive performing arts with a strong sense of visual design, uh, incredible engineering to make it all work, and of course, dealing with uh, urgent scientific uh, happenings that have lots of implications for public policy. And the conversation we're having today is designed to try to weave together a number of those threads. Uh, we're grateful to Nahed Ahmed and everybody here at the Institute for hosting us. And we are really grateful to the panel, and I want to introduce our moderator, who will then introduce everybody else. And that's uh, Sofia Kalantzakos. She's a Global Distinguished Professor of Environmental Studies and Public Policy here at NYUAD, uh, on loan to us from NYU in New York. She began her career as a policymaker and until 2009 served as an elected member of parliament and a minister in the Greek government. In 2010, she became Global Distinguished Professor in Environmental Studies and Public Policy at NYU. And her interdisciplinary research focuses on public policy and international affairs especially resource competition and climate change as threats that are reshaping power politics across the globe. So please welcome Sofia Kalantzakos. Good afternoon. This is a wonderful turnout. I think uh, it's a testament to your three and a half thousand gallon warning message about what's happening to our climate. Lars, I would like to start with you. I mean, climate change is, is obviously one of the greatest, or the greatest, actually, global threat today. And we have various visuals about its impacts. One of them has to do with water. And this is something that you chose. We've, we've seen over the, since climate change is actually happening already, and we are seeing the impacts, we've also witnessed many scenes and footage from floods as Hurricane Katrina, uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York, recent hurricane in the Philippines, Paris flooding just a few months ago. What inspired you? We would like to talk about the Holocene first and foremost. Thanks everybody for being here and thank you for having me at NYU Abu Dhabi. It's, it's really rare to have the opportunity to present what mostly people perceive as an artistic work, which is also a work of activism. And the dramaturgy and research that went into the project really drew from the hard sciences and behavioral sciences um, and a study of history as well. And so being at a liberal arts institution and having all of these conversations around the piece has been, to me, as a model for how I think the work should be presented. So just like <laughs> congratulations to the community here for putting it together. Flooding. Well, I had an idea that was about 45 seconds long, and maybe this happens for some of you, where... You sort of your conscious mind won't really realize that you're some seeing something visually. And what I was seeing was a person in a room reading a newspaper, and slowly the room started to fill with water. And rather than reacting, you know, alarmed, the person just continued to 
read the newspaper as the water rose. In fact, as the water came up to his mouth, he took a breath, and the water kept on going to the ceiling, and he kept on turning the pages until the pages uh, disintegrated in the water, and he kept turning pages that weren't there. And so that visual idea popped up in, I'd say, 2011. And, but I think what had been happening is that I had started having a passive sort of subconscious awareness of incidents of flooding, ever since, really starting with Hurricane Katrina probably, mm-hmm. all the way through Hurricane Sandy in 2012. But just feeling like either the media is covering this story differently or I wasn't paying attention before or there's a lot of 100-year storms in like five years in different parts of the world. And flooding is sort of a leading edge, let's say, indicator or signal of climate change. It's something that we can wrap our, our heads around. It does damage to our property immediately. And it happens in coastal communities and non-coastal communities, really people who live near the water all over the place. And I feel like flooding also is something that speaks to me viscerally because I'm a little bit scared of deep water. I'm slightly phobic. I mean, I love the ocean. I always push myself to go and swim as far out as I can. But then my heartbeat starts to shift and my breathing shifts a little bit. And I don't know if, I don't know if you, if everybody, you know, certainly not everybody feels that way. But I think there's something deep and elemental and ancient about our relationship with water. And obviously it's absolutely pivotal to our existence. And at the same time, there's so many mythologies and such a fraught history with, water as, an, as, a, as a destroyer and in many different traditions. But just watching some of the, I don't know if I should call them vignettes or some of the performances sure. in the Holocene, sometimes I felt almost comforted as if I were back in a womb. I, I, I think it's a little, I share your fear. Uh, even though I'm, I, I'm a diver, I'm Greek, so how can I be afraid yeah. of the sea? But still, there is something about it, a respect maybe. Maybe it's not the fear, but just the how vast it is and how powerful. But when I do look at some of the performances, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering, I'm, I, I'm almost comforted. How is that possible? Mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by the tension between sort of the beautiful and the horrific in the arts. And another, another thing that was an influence to the project was a, a photograph taken by a photojournalist named Daniel Barahulak in 2010 of flooding in northern, uh, northwestern Pakistan that was devastating to that region. And it's a stunning photograph. It looks like a Raphael painting. And it's taken from sort of an unexpected perspective. There's a couple dozen people running through water, some to their ankles, some to their necks, in flowing colorful flat fabrics with gorgeously lit by the setting sun. And the image pulled me in. And I started to read the story about it, and the story is grim. The story is that there's a Pakistani military helicopter which has brought food and potable water to the people who are literally dying of thirst, even though they're surrounded by water because there's dead bodies and feces and dead cows in the water. And that food aid and water has hit the flood, the flood water surface and cracked open and is sinking. And so all of these people are trying to get to, this, to these life-sustaining essentials before they sink. And it's a gorgeous picture. The gorgeous picture delivers a horrific, sort of visceral tableau. But it's mysterious. And that mystery allowed me to, forced me to ask, what is this? Why is this? And it it got me interested in the content of not only the story, but then also 
the tendrils reach much further, right? The tendrils, okay, northern Pakistan flooding. <coughs> this is a hundred year flood, and then it then you can if you start going down the Wikipedia or Google hole, all of a sudden you're looking at the Anthropocene and you're having a much bigger conversation about climate change, which is what happened to me. So that was a that was a launch pad for my own curiosity and research, and I'm interested in art's role um, in that way. So this is a, I, I think this would be an interesting angle to explore. If It seems as if there's not much art, I would say, output that supports our growing understanding and fear and need for action with respect to climate change. How do you, and it's also hard to say that artists, not all artists are also activists. And I was going to ask you if you felt like an activist, but you you already labeled yourself as one, so that's that was easy. But but this may not transcend to other artists. How do you feel that this global change is impacting art, and what kind of message could be sent that may move us in ways that politicians don't, and the headlines don't, and elections don't? And that's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I want to say first that I fully believe in art for art's sake, uh, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to uh, a mode of expression. I don't think there has to be a purpose to art. Um, I think actually I think making art for no purpose whatsoever is totally radical um, and and political in a great way. In terms of you know artists are often at canaries in the coal mine. They often see things coming a little bit earlier than others and so I think that's an important role that you know artists are Attempting to play at the moment. I mean, I, I think you're right. I don't. I don't feel that. I don't. The, the word that came to mind was the tsunami, which is ironic. But I, I, you know, I don't feel the tsunami of consciousness moving through the artistic community yet. And I think because you know, artists are people like the rest of us, and climate change is a very complex subject, and it's elusive, and it's you know, my research led in so many different directions to work on Holocene's, and it's very hard to know how to encapsulate a subject that's quite so massive and, and elusive. And you also don't want to do something that's didactic and teacherly, right? I don't want to show you bar graphs and statistics, which are very valid ways of communicating and would be illuminating to a lot of people. But at the same time, that's I think art artists can recognize the fact that we all communicate in different ways. And while Tables and statistics are ways that some of us could take it in that information and really feel it and, and have it be meaningful. There's a lot of people for whom that's not true, and so I think artists can be translators. I think that's our that's our best hope. Really, is that there's an alliance between artists and scientists and <coughs> policymakers. I'm hopeful for that. I don't. The arts are also siloed, and the the sciences are usually quite siloed, and so it's going to take lots of reaching across. And I think the biggest obstruction for me, at least in my own experience, is vocabulary. So that scientific vocabulary is dense and challenging, and it's a deeply evolved language unto itself, and somewhat less so, but also, but also <laughs> the case is that that's true in the arts as well. And there's all these different disciplines, and people communicate in different ways. But I think there's, I think communication is the key, and communication outside of the silos is the key. I feel like the most important thing from my perspective is rather than anybody or organization or person trying to teach the population something, I feel like a better model would be to illustrate or incite, their, to really incite their imagination or their curiosity about that, about whatever that thing is, so that they want to 
to know. They, they ask the question themselves. And once they ask the questions, you have the information ready. So we're, we're going to talk a lot about the translation because I, David and I were having a, a minor seminar using <laughs> hands, using uh, you know, a pencil, trying to, to translate. He was explaining to me what we will talk about very shortly about sea level rising and what does that mean and what's the myth, what's the, it sounds so complex for us, we don't really know what's going on. So he, David's going to talk to us a little bit about that. And then we spoke a lot about the need to translate the facts into a language that we can understand. And one way is art. Another way we'll, we'll talk about is also policy, how to bring the message home. But before we get into that, I would like to invite three students who just came back from COP22. I told them that they have two minutes each and they cannot pass that limit, but they will update us about what happened in COP22 in Morocco, which is really important because it took place exactly at the time that the U.S. had its election, which well, we'll find out more about it, if it, it even impacted the conversation taking place in Marrakesh. So I'd like to invite them to tell us a few words. Julia, Mira, and October, they're going to pick the order in which they will speak. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having us here. As Sophia said, we were three of the eight students who had the opportunity to go to COP22 in Morocco, which is the biggest climate change conference that is held annually. While I was there, I was focusing on adaptation, which is how do we strengthen our communities to adapt to the effects of climate change, which we are already witnessing. And so much of the communication or um, debate surrounding adaptation was really, how do we incentivize public donors and private donors because of the failure of the Green Climate Fund, which is the largest climate fund, but it doesn't provide um, particularly at-risk communities with comprehensive loans. So that was one conversation that was going on. Uh, another thing was really how do we provide the proper communication to communicate how we were adapting to the adverse effects of climate change. Um, there was a push for some of the more at-risk communities to provide more comprehensive adaptation communication plans. Um, and so those were the two main updates for adaptation at climate change at the Climate Change Conference COP22. All right, thank you. My name is October. So. For last year's COP, countries came together and agreed to form an NDC every five years, which is a nationally determined contribution, sort of like national promise. And then for this year, the countries came together to discuss on the guidance on how do they write for the next year's NDC. And I mean, during the discussion I was tracking, I was struck by how countries could move the meetings so slow and they could focus on their national interest instead of the issues at stake. For example, there was a very heated debate on the point of feature, what features should be included in the next NDC, next promises. So developed country parties were really pushing forward for to not include financial support, while developing country parties were pushing forward really hard for not including quantitative data instead of qualitative data. So I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by how they can uh, filibuster, even filibuster on a very single basic point and not move the meeting forward. And when the time runs out, they just came to discuss how should we proceed to the next meeting? When is the meeting time? What should we prepare for that? So for the whole COP, they haven't really reached agreement on the guidance for their promises. Not even the promise, but the guidance for the promises. So given the situation now, I feel I realize how much 
this challenge, how grave this challenge is, especially when climate change isn't the external enemy we are facing, it is ourselves and we are creating our own obstacles. Um, hello, my name is Mira Santos. Um, when I was at COM22, I was tracking the Warsaw International Mechanism to address loss and damage of the most adverse effects of climate change and also slow onset events by reducing the risk for disaster and providing insurance for the uh, most vulnerable countries. And while um, there wasn't a lot of progress made to strengthen this mechanism, which is by itself is very weak, and while I did see a lot of frustration from the least developed countries, I did see promise in the role of non-state actors, businesses, NGOs, and communities in providing insurance to the most vulnerable countries and taking on that leadership and filling in the gap that other countries, other state actors haven't been able to fill. And as an American citizen, I was devastated on the day that Donald Trump was elected president, who, as you all know, is a climate contrarian and who just appointed someone who denies climate change as head of the Environmental Protection Agency and while it did cast a huge shadow over the talks, I think many countries like China and the UAE saw it as an opportunity to take leadership and act on the climate to uh, replace the US as the leaders on climate by strengthening and renewing their ambitions, their ambitious commitments to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And as we found out today, many of the most vulnerable countries have committed to 100% renewable energy to provide all of their future energy needs. Those are my updates. Okay, thank you. We're trying really hard to leave with a positive message. It's, it's, it's a difficult topic to be very positive about, but at least we need to know what's truly happening. So David, tell us a little bit how much, explain to us how it works. When we keep saying that the sea levels will be rising, first of all, we have different people giving us different dates. We don't exactly know what that means. Is there a tipping point? Is it that we're going to wake up one day and we'll be flooded? How is, does it work? Let's try to understand the science. And then the policymakers will tell us what to do about it. But most importantly, I, this is something exact, an exact example of how much confusion there is out there. On the one hand, we want to act, but either because they're climate deniers who've rigged the system, they make us feel that there's not enough scientific evidence. There's also, but it does lead to some confusion. There's some, either from the policy world or maybe even the scientific world, I think mostly politicians in this case, are trying to, to sound more alarmist or to show alarm, but to make it sound as if this is happening in 10 years, it could be happening in 20 years, not that it really matters. So explain to us what's actually happening and how it will impact this. Okay, thanks for the invitation here and thanks to the Research Institute for setting this up. It's great to be here with you and I look forward to meeting you. And I love your exhibit, Lars, it's fabulous. I really mean that, it's awesome. And thank you to you guys for showing up, taking time to, uh, to share with us our, our thoughts, and we'd like to also hear your thoughts on this matter. Sophia, what I suggest is I have a short two-minute video, which is kind of the background of sea level and glaciers. That'll set kind of a soft context. And then after that, maybe we could go through six slides of how do we know what we know. And uh, the modern parlance of this now is a report we just wrote called How Much, How Fast? kind of summarizes where the science community is. So Perfect. We'll get to that. I think we should do that. 
often ask me, why study glaciers in Abu Dhabi? When glaciers melt in Greenland and Antarctica, raise sea level, and that information arrives in Abu Dhabi about a week later. It's a global problem with global connections. There is no correct place to study this. And in particular, cities like Abu Dhabi, which are so at sea level, will be uh, greatly affected by this. What we're studying it is how naturally and under climate change, these glaciers, Greenland and Antarctica, might accelerate into the ocean, losing more than they're gaining by snowfall. The largest change in surface elevation you'll see occurs at one or two key spots. And one of these places is called the Lulisat here in Greenland. And recently, that ice has uh, been undergoing a fighting a losing battle in which it's pouring more, much more ice into the ocean than the ice sheet is gaining. You have rock here on the fjord sidewalls covered in snow. You have the fjord, which is about a kilometer deep. You have the glacier, which is about a kilometer thick, sitting on rock that's grounded. In the 1840s, it was here, and then it gradually receded over the last century, and then it was about here. And then in 1998, so it was going back slowly, in 1998, the Gulf Stream waters pushed towards Greenland, went under these glaciers, came actually in this fjord, they have been data for, traveled along the bottom of the fjord and hit the glacier. The glacier was here. And now, as I said, this is a kilometer deep, but as you go back, it gets deeper and deeper, the bedrock. And so there's a process whereby this ice uh, will start to, because it's thicker, will actually start to flow faster. So this is, will have some effect on sea level, but a modest amount globally. But this exact same process is presently uh, unraveling in Antarctica. And what it will mean is over a century to centuries, you'll have a meter or more of sea level change around the entire planet, which is a significant number since most people now live at the coast. It was hinted at there, but that goes along a bit fast. But now I'd like to go through these six points of how did we arrive at the scientific basis. So one of the things that concerns me as a scientist actually is that people get facts correct. And um, so I kind of also interested in what Lars said about people have to become curious to seek the facts. Pushing it down somebody's throat is not the way to go. So I think people are curious about the environment and concerned. So I think it's an opportunity to share information on the environment. And ultimately your exhibit caught me as kind of special in that you basically have the facts right. And a really amazing fact that Denise mentioned to me yesterday, uh, Denise is my wife over here, she works with me in Greenland and Antarctica, is the total possible sea level coming out of the place we're going to mention called West Antarctica is 10 feet or three meters. It's pretty much the height of your tank. So it's a very nice description of what, what's at stake from very small amount low in your tank to the top. So that, I think that's uh, something maybe share with people. So the question is, you will see in the media people talking about climate change, and in the first paragraph, in almost any article, the word sea level appears within that paragraph. And I don't know if the people who read it really know how, how, how do you raise that question? Why sea level of the many things you could talk about, and why is it a concern? So let's just go through the last six decades of the things that happened in the science world that are factually true and real and 
This is our basis. We don't have some other basis or some other facts. These are the facts. These are peer-reviewed things that over decades have become renowned. And I want to share these with you because I don't think they're known by the public. So the first thing is that there's something called a marine ice sheet. An ice sheet is a glacier on land, but glaciers can also flow off the land into the ocean and ground onto the seafloor. If you were to remove the ice from Antarctica, virtually as we did here, what you'd find out is one half of Antarctica is on land and the other half is already in the ocean. And the part that's in the ocean is called a marine ice sheet. And because it's in the ocean and because ocean waters can melt ice very quickly compared to the atmosphere, that's the big concern. It's the part of Antarctica that's in the ocean, called a marine ice sheet. And it's also in the West, so it's called the West Antarctic. So maybe, Sophie, we could just stop at that point and see that this idea of a marine ice sheet is coming out and that that's the threat. But why is that the threat? It does exist. And a guy we know um, came to visit us at NYU. Denise, you'll remember Charlie Bentley. He was a PhD student in 1957. His supervisor said, go to Antarctica, do something. And so he's going across Antarctica and he's measuring the depth of the Antarctic ice sheet. And no one had ever done this. Everyone assumed the ice was on land above sea level. So the ocean cannot touch it. And he kept shooting his seismic reflector and it constantly said the entire ice sheet that where he was in the West was a mile below sea level. Like, how can it be a mile below sea level? Isn't the land supposed to be there? So he spent the entire winter trying to figure this out until he concluded the ice sheets in the ocean. And that's the beginning of this entire sea level story. Okay, we practiced this before. I want to tell you, this is fascinating. So think about this piece of ice that's obviously attached somewhere because it's not floating currently. It's attached, but it's not on land. It's attached to the bottom of the ocean. So now walk us through what does that mean for Antarctica and with global warming happening? Okay, so so that first part is established now after 1957. And nothing happened right after that. People did not get the significance of that. It was just a PhD student had made this amazing discovery that was very surprising. So then we jump to your question is the next slide, which is a few years passed, and then... A mathematician, theoretician, Vertman, um, he developed a theory, and what, what he found was that marine ice sheets are unstable. So, and this comes into a subtlety now, and maybe you can help me get this part across. This instability exists. I'll just state why it exists, and then we can see if we can work it. Because at the coast of Antarctica, where there is the continental shelf, Continental shelves are shallow. The deep ocean is deep, but then as you approach Antarctica, you're rising to the continental shelf. And now, what is truly surprising, as you go inland from the continental shelf towards the center of Antarctica, which is the South Pole, the seafloor gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's the surprising thing so he this discovered. This is what's actually happening in Antarctica alone. Instead of it rising, the continental shelf is the exact inverse. 
as we get closer, sorry, as we get closer to land, the sea is getting deeper. Okay, what's the significance of that? So the significance is that, uh, and this is just a statement of physics, and you could spend two hours, go home and work it out, but we'll just state it, that as ice gets thicker, it flows faster. This has to do with the way gravity drives it. So just picture ice is flowing at a certain speed at the coast today, say, and it's in balance. A balanced ice sheet means it snows on the ice sheet and the ice sheet gets bigger, but icebergs break off and the ice sheet loses. It's like a bank account, money in, money out. Today, you would say it's close to balance. And what happens though, is if you start to retreat inland, for some reason, we're gonna leave to the next slide. For some reason, you might advance and have a bigger ice sheet, or you might retreat and have a smaller. So we'll leave that alone for the second, a trigger for that. But should you retreat inland, the ice becomes thicker because you said the seafloor is deeper. That means it flows faster. You're beginning to break the balance. You're starting to spend more than you're taking in. The ice sheet's getting smaller, less snow coming on it, less income. But as you retreat back, you spend more, you're going out faster. So you're in heading for bankruptcy. Let's see the next slide, and then we're going to return back to that. So we now understand that the retreat means that it's going to break down faster, if we put it in simple terms. Right. And, and there's a mathematical theory which is published here in this paper, and you can read it. It's really, really famous, and it is true. Okay. So the next thing is, well, there's one other step before we get to the, that, which is there was a guy, John Mercer, in Ohio, and he made the observation that, oh yeah, in the 70s, people started to really catch on that there's more and more carbon dioxide in the air. It's about increased by about 30% in the last century. And people were talking, some people, about the air warming and the temperature record. So global warming was becoming known. He observed that fact. He also knew Wortman's theory. And he said, oh, that's interesting. We have something at the south part of our planet that's unstable, if you trigger it, and yet he perceived that CO2 increase would be this trigger for warming. So that, that was a real breaking point there. Okay. So that's just an observation where he put two thoughts together, and it turns out he was on the money in terms of where we ended up today. So we have an unstable system, and the CO2, the trigger that's going to trigger the further instability. Right. Okay. So he said a threat of disaster, again, a possibility. So again, it was like, okay, then it kind of died away, but people remembered this statement. Mm -hmm. The next thing is that in terms of a glacier being triggered, one that's in the ocean, the waters around glaciers are cold. That's why the glacier is there. If you have warm water near a glacier, the glacier will not be there very long. Uh, two things are not obvious, but air melts glaciers very slowly. Water melts it very fast. Warm water blows it away. So a friend of mine, Stan Jacobs, in 1994, traveling along the coast of Antarctica in his boat, with the National Science Foundation, $100 million icebreaker, but anyway, and went into this place in Antarctica the place that's considered the most vulnerable. And he put in his temperature sensor and said, my gosh, this is really warm water. Everywhere in Antarctica, the water's cold. 
except in the one place that's super unstable. And so this became like the first smoking gun or observation that there's a serious concern here. Why is this water warm here today? It certainly could not have been warm for centuries because the glacier would be gone. So it's kind of weird. He showed up in 1996, the only first measurement ever made. The water is warm on the doorstep of this glacier. So now we know that the water is warm, that a huge part of Antarctica is actually a marine glacier. It's in the water and it's sitting on a bump. With the process of melting, because the water is warmer, because there's more CO2 in the atmosphere, the glacier is going to unglue, let's put it this way, in very easy terms to understand, from that bump. But given the fact that instead of it going this way, it's going this way, it's going to start moving faster inland, which in science terms is called retreating, and it will be able to break down much faster, a fact that has led scientists to believe that within the next 100 years, based on the current modeling, sea level will rise just by this one particular marine glacier by three to 10 feet, three to 10 feet within the next 100 years. So this has been something that we've, we've been discussing because I believe that most of us haven't understood the mechanics. How does it actually work? Why are we so focused in Antarctica? We're, a lot of people are looking at Greenland, for example. But this particular one event in Antarctica will lead to a rise of sea level from three to 10 feet within the next 100 years, and this will happen globally. So the thing that we were discussing amongst ourselves before is that we will be losing, as a planet, we will be losing a lot of land. So I want to stop right there and ask our representative from the United Arab Emirates uh, Ministry for Climate Change and the Environment to tell us in a country that is investing so heavily on the sea and the ocean front, what are your thoughts? I know that there are wider concerns about climate change in the UAE, and please do tell us about that because there's a lot of work that's being done. But also, if you could enlighten us a little bit as a coastal country with so much of the infrastructure facing the water, what are your thoughts about that or your policy suggestions or actions? Hello. Firstly, apologize, you know, like uh, my director, Aisha Abdouli, and couldn't come join today for family reasons. And then, you know, I was about to go into the hiking, actually, so that's why <laughs> we are like this, and I was called up around 1.30 or 2 o'clock, and suddenly I have to, you know, come to New York University, and that's why you know, I didn't have a time to change You're right at home. That's how we dress so here. I, I feel, you know, very much easy, you know, yes. <laughs> feeling at home. So thank you for inviting, and nice to meet you and uh, in person. And uh, I'm from the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment for this country, and working as a policy advisor for the last two and a half years. And actually, you know, most of the colleagues working for COP22 and still, you know, like on the way flying back from the Marrakesh. 
and uh, I'm, you know, Aisha, and I'm the, you know, few persons staying here. <laughs> so that's why, you know, I, I came here to, to speak to you about, uh, you know, this climate change impact. But question, you know, you, you hear all the, you know, scary stories about what's happening all the globe. And uh, as a, you know, policymakers, as I know, like uh, normal citizens, probably, you know, your concerns as well, what's happening to, to you, yourself and uh, your country and, uh, you know, working as a UAE and also, you know, impact for the UAE, it's quite important to know. But the difficult point is most of the science is quite global level. And then getting what actually happening to this region, it's really, we don't have, you know, enough information. And actually, you know, we are closely working with the Abu Dhabi authorities. Abu Dhabi authorities working with, you know, a few uh, well-known institutions like uh, World Resources Institute and to make kind of CDI's modeling for this country, these regions. But it's the, the fundamental point is, you know, to make modeling, you need the basic data to put, you know, your own local data in the modeling, which is not available in this country and this region. So then we, we have to rely on pretty much international estimation. So whatever the science telling us is lot of uncertainty for, for this region. And uh, the first effort we are trying to make is, uh, you know, getting data light, you know, like try to get uh, as much as, you know, local data possible, then try to feed into the international studies. Uh, you know, like this region is like basically the Gulf. So as far as I see, you know, like uh, this, this uh, research with uh, World Resource Institute, as I, as I see that it's, you know, sea light level itself is not massive for, for this region. Because, you know, like uh, it's not, you know, connected to the international sea, it's a bit, uh, you know, inland, in water. But the main more concern is, you know, several concerns. It's about, uh, you know, impact on marine biodiversity. But more major concern, probably the rise of the salinity in this region. So it's basically, you know, already this region, the seawater is very, very salty compared with other parts of the world. Then we have to utilize this seawater to, to, for the, your drinking water, basically. Then probably, you know, this uh, global warming impact on the, the rising, the saltiness of this water, which makes you know, like desalination or making, uh, you know, drinking water from the salt water, it's making much more expensive. And also, rest this technology using, uh, instead of ordinary desalination process, they use, uh, you know, new kind of the, like pipes, basically. Uh, then, basically, you know, if the saltiness is too high, then this pipe stuck, basically. So you, you cannot utilize this technology if, you know, saltiness is too high. So this is one concern. Probably it's also, you know, like uh, not necessarily the coastal zones. That's also, you know, like that's quite common around the world, you know, why people want to leave the coastal areas, you know, not only here, but also like New York, for instance, Tokyo or wherever, most of the city located just beside the sea. In the sense, it's all the, you know, like a big major city have to be concerned about how to tackle with uh, these issues. And we have to develop the, you know, good technology together and also good strategy how to locate the city in more safer place. 
and also how to make uh, all the building more you know, resilient to the climate change. The third point is just looking at your own country is not enough, and especially for this region, uh, this region, because this country imports over 90% of food from different countries. So we have to concern about the country we are importing the food, basically. And the major country, probably like India, Pakistan, and Iran, those were countries. Then we have to understand this, uh, the global warming, how it impacts on their food production. <coughs> then if, you know, like food prices dies and the production is declines, how we can feed these countries. It's not only, you know, concern is about climate. Really, you have to look into how, you know, this the warming impact on different parts of your life. And that's where this country having a massive challenge and how to cope with, uh, you know, kind of future impact from the climate change. Okay, so we get a, the a first idea of what the UAE is doing, mostly focused at the moment on more urgent, let's say, or practical issues such as the, the question of salinity of the water and uh, how to get fresh water. Also, the question of food security, which is a wider issue, showing us also that climate change negotiations talk so much about emissions that we forget to consider that there are other aspects also that tie into it, of course, but are part of what we should be thinking about in a wider in, in the wider context of the Anthropocene. But one question that I have is the choice, it's, it's not only a policy choice, but there's also, you're hinting uh, uh, to this in, through art. What about adaptation and mitigation? Should we be focusing so much on adaptation and mitigation? I mean, I guess we don't have an option. But it seems as if we're now trying to put up yet another wall. In lower Manhattan, for example, there's already a budget of a billion dollars, you said, David? Committed, committed to creating seawalls, not all around like a fortress, but in certain particular neighborhoods that are very vulnerable to flooding and sea level rising. So it seems as if we've still opted for not to retreat. We're still kind of trying to hold the line. What does that mean? And, and why did you pick that in the art? Why didn't the person with the newspaper panic and jump out of the tank? Why was he reading his newspaper? Yeah, I mean, I think adaptation is fascinating. And I think adaptation is a double-edged sword. So adaptation is perhaps one of humanity's sort of greatest strengths and gifts. And we can persevere and reconstruct a world which has fallen to pieces and that can become a new normal quite quickly and it can be functional. And then we can try to build from that place and try to restore something or create something that we remember or try to create something entirely new. At the same time, I think there's a lot of ego and hubris associated with our our capacity for adaptation and so i think an example i would you know say in this in this particular context is sort of geoengineering and there's like a, it's sort of where we live in a technophilic age and so and i live in california which is sort of the height of technophilia and so everybody just thinks well you know elon musk and tesla are going to figure out a way to you know just suck all the carbon out of the out of the atmosphere and they're going to make smartphones out of the carbon and it's going to be free for everybody. 
I mean, I think that's really dangerous because you go all the way back to like Greek mythology and, you know, humans interfering in sort of things that we don't entirely understand just often doesn't go that well. We have a large history, for example, doing on a much simpler level, introducing species into ecologies that are far more complex than we ever understood. And those species run wild and do, again, do things that we didn't anticipate. And I think that's, and so the thing that I'm concerned about like David, I loved your presentation, but one of my concerns is that our models are terrible. And the fact that we think that we have a model that's going to tell us anything predictive about the future is a little bit of an illusion because the system's too complex. And so when we sort of drill down and, and put blinders on and say, this is what's going to happen in this particular place that's going to lead to this, it makes us feel confident, like we can act. And that's a great feeling. And I understand why people want to take that pill. At the same time, history has borne out many times that, you know, look at what's happening in Syria right now. Now, I'm not, I know that there's a lot of reasons why that's happening. It's really complicated, but some of that has to do just with drought and food security. And so this issue of what's happening in India and, what, and, and what's happening in India depends on what's happening in China, what's happening in Pakistan and what's happening in Iran. Everything's connected in a way that we can't possibly control. So I feel like acknowledging that is the first step. That's what I would like to see is that, you know, we, 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 what we have to do is sort of be more humble in the face of this crisis. And, and I understand we also have to make decisions. We need to have conversations. I think we need to realize that humans have made a really bad calculation. And that calculation was that industrialization, one of our key outputs of industrialization, other than the things that we like, is pollution. And the, and the calculation that pollution is free as a part of capitalism was totally wrong. And, we did, and, that, and, and it played out for 300 years. It's extremely cost, and that's a model that we got wrong. And that's our economic model. It's the foundation of the 21st century, the 20th century, the 19th century. Will it be this foundation of the 21st century and 22nd going forward? I'm not sure. So basically, the most important model we've gotten wrong which was the economic, we need to tweak that, but we're trying to, to address peripheral issues that are all important in and of themselves, but we're not actually taking a hard look at the foundation of what we've built. David, your thoughts? I know you want to talk, we, we also had a longer conversation about scientists are being put in a very difficult place because they want to tell you how things are happening, how things work. They want to share their knowledge and their findings based on what we know thus far. That's why scientists are never comforting to, especially to politicians, because they can tell them that something will be 100% will happen with 100% certainty, which publics also really feel a need to understand. They speak in probabilities, which also allows for campaigns of doubt to flourish. And they also don't feel comfortable then moving, connecting the dots to say, and these are our policy recommendations. I ask you, though, as a scientist, about the modeling itself. Don't tell us what to do about it, but what about the limitations of, of our knowledge in terms of the predictability yeah. of uh, such a complex system? So Lars got that right about sea level and the complexity. I'm not sure people know that the modeling of air temperature and the warming of the air for the next 100 years and in the past, that modeling is very accurate and it's really not up for question when people say this, you may know there's different scenarios depending on how much CO2 the air will warm by so much. Greenhouse gases and warming air 
the way it affects infrared radiation, et cetera, et cetera. This physics is really straightforward. You spend a little time studying it, it's solid. What people don't get is the complexity of once you warm the air, it changes the atmospheric circulation patterns. The atmosphere drives the ocean, changes ocean patterns. Like for example, the Gulf Stream moved a few years ago a little bit. And then this glacier problem, this instability where we're talking about, that's incredibly complex. So when we get to the modeling of sea level, it turns out it's really hard, but we can put bounds on it. But I don't know if the people know that the modeling of air temperature change is done. We know how to do that kind of. So there's a distinction there to make the people may not see those nuances. I just share that. And clicking to the last slide here. So finishing that story of the mechanics in 2004, people looked down with satellites from space and the place where the warm water was seen, well, in 2004, the largest change on the planet from seen from space was that this area of Antarctica was dropping by several meters every year over a vast area. And so this was a big thing. Now, this is an observation. This is not up for discussion. <laughs> this is at this place. Now, this is what's up for discussion. This is the modeling question, Sophia. So we have on the slides 1957, observation, 1974, a theory, 1978, a hypothesis of collapse, 1996, observation, warm waters, 2004, observation, this glacier is collapsing, 2014, a computer model of the future. Clearly, observations are now or the past, and a model is here forward, and I think that's where you want to go next, and I think we're ready to say that now. And the person who wrote this paper here, it's an interesting title. This was World News. Marine ice sheet collapse potentially underway in the worst location it could possibly happen in Antarctica. And the author of this is, I was talking to you about how I feel conservative as a scientist. I don't like scientists exaggerating because I think ultimately that will come back to bite you, if nothing else. And this guy is super conservative, this guy who wrote this, Jonkin. Actually, his son is a freshman here at Abu Dhabi. He might be here. I hope he's in the audience. All right. Okay. So this guy is super conservative. So when he makes this kind of statement, and you notice he put the word potentially in there, this is the state of the art of the science. It's a computer model. It uses what we know. But you have to admit the complexity that you talked about is here. And what is nonetheless interesting is that a set of mathematical equations with physics in them, in a computer simulation which is objective, produced the result by which this glacier collapsed. And I think that puts it on the table of the physically plausible. It doesn't say it's a certainty, but if it didn't collapse in the model, I think we should stop talking about sea level and move on to something else, because where's the evidence for the discussion? If it doesn't have a scientific finding, then I don't think our feelings or opinions about sea level matter. I have people say to me, they have this theory that the sun is going to go into a little ice age this century. Okay, now where's the publication? Where's the peer review of your idea? There's lots of things you could say, but I focus on these things that are things that have been heavily studied by a group of people who are very, very skeptical people these people who approve this stuff. I guess my question is, especially in light of the election, 
how do we start to create a global society in which that way of thinking is actually valued and drives policy more? That's, you know, it comes down to sort of how do we encourage critical thinking in the populace more generally? How do we encourage media literacy in the population more generally? What are the things that we need to do at the root in order to even be able to make these arguments? Because right now it feels like there are a lot of people in citadels who have a lot of information with very cogent perspectives with a lot of research and that their communication style is falling on, falling on deaf ears. So I, I would give an answer to that, that I think, first of all, we need to really understand how things work. We've moved from the pursuit of actually understanding the systems to just accepting the applications. None of us really know how things work. We don't really ask. We just know that they exist and they operate in a particular way. The second thing is, it's an interesting American perspective that we are projecting the same thing that's happening in America, the same kind of debate that's happening in the United States is not happening in other parts of the world. There are publics, such as the Europeans, for example, which have many other faults, but at least on climate, it's still, even in the worst debt crisis, I was just looking at the figures the other day, they're still 93% convinced that it's one of the top two global issues that the world is facing, and they're convinced about the science. They, they're convinced that the government has an obligation to pursue measures, and they're now also adding in their responses the need for individual responsibility. But they still believe that this is going to be a government-led effort, which is the problem in the United States. So the United States, just by sheer size and perhaps even, even access to all the media outlets in a much more profound way and the superpower status and all of that, is projecting an image of publics across the globe that is not the reality. It doesn't mean that people are ready to sacrifice because governments are also telling people that nothing's going to change. We can, we can innovate our way out of this or we can tweak the system a little bit because we want to keep growing. We'll, we can actually do it better. We can do it more efficiently. It can be more just. We can all have a seat at the table. How much of this is myth? If we couldn't have done that in the good years, if we can do it now, who knows? We'll see in the future. But this is interesting that we're projecting the American internal debate into a global state of understanding of the climate. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, people love status quo. You, know? you, you don't want to change your job and you don't want to, you know, change your life as far as possible. And you want to keep on your own, you know, lifestyles. So, you know, whatever science says, you want to see only convenient facts and convenient, even not facts and convenient statements, I guess. So, you know, facts that we see in the states, it's really, you know, happening in this way. And I, I see, you know, many Europeans and other countries becoming, you know, this conservative side, that which is also scary, but also, you know, the part of the human psychology, I would say. But that said, it's why, you know, like uh, oil producing country like UAE is pursuing like renewable energy, other source of energies. 
which is quite interesting, unique point. It's you know this this part of the region. It's always try to see the value in the future. Let's say. I, I understand the leadership doesn't believe you know this kind of oil wealth lasts forever. Let's say. And then intelligent leadership is basically that this wealth coming from the oil have to be invested for the future. Basically, not for just spending you know now. Let's say. So. For instance, this New York University is a part of the the reason. It's why you exist, basically. And uh, you know, like all the wealth, it's they they think that knowledge is important for the future. Knowledge can create the future as a, you know new kind of the engine of growth and the economy. That was a part of the reason why uh, Abu Dhabi built under this university, and uh, they 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 want to believe in the young generations. To get you know more scientific knowledge, to find you know better solutions, that's very kind of the long term vision you have to have. Then you never know what's happening in the future. But that that's how you know Abu Dhabi and uh, UAE and a few other countries in this region and try to see, not just looking at current we have and then try to maximize profit for the you know current generations. They try to think the future generations in this way. Okay, why don't we have questions from the audience? I think we've expressed opinions, ideas, facts. So I think it would, it, it's a great moment now to open the floor. Do you have mics, or do you need to take ours? I know you said that the UAE is um, looking more at food, food security and potential temperature increase. But is there a plan for looking at climate uh, at sea level rise in the UAE? Are there mitigation strategies in place? In fact, we are currently developing the climate change plan for the, this country, <laughs> and plan basically outlines on how we can cope with uh, mitigation and adaptations, and also how to get the business opportunity out of the climate uh, solutions. Let's say. So adaptation, we are looking into the very details, but it's the issue is still we don't have exactly what's happening for this country. So the first step is more actual, you know, very detailed risk assessment we have. Then we can make a more detailed plan how to cope with these risks. But that said, it's you know if keep waiting the you know this evaluation estimations, it's you know action going to be too late. So I would say at the same time we could introduce, for instance, some risk assessment standards or guideline. Whatever we make a new infrastructure development and buildings, and the builders basically have to assess the risks based on you know potential climate change. Say. David, you had talked about how we need data because we're seeing a common theme here that we don't have enough data, local data. To deal with uh, the the water rising, seawater rising, and you were telling me earlier that we it would be great to have a database that would tell us at what level above sea level yeah. uh, all the coastal zones are globally. Right. So, so that's a very specific thing and a very good point. Right now, there is no easily accessible database that I can go into and find the coastline anywhere in the world in high resolution pull it out and get the elevation of every square meter of that piece of land. If I had such a database, I could do scenario I could perform scenarios quite simply of different amounts of sea level rise under different scenarios and see what parts of the planet and coastline would be affected by that 
that amount. And that comes from an interesting technology. It's actually the, the spy satellites uh, have released these data in non-sensitive areas. And with stereo photos from space, you can see this table if it was something of this size. And so with stereo, you can actually produce elevation maps. So all this data has been collected and it's sitting in lockers and it's not being processed for this purpose. And Denise and I have been pushing with, uh, for reasons why there's pushback, I don't know. This just seems like a very sensible global database to create. It just takes a few million dollars of effort and it will be done. Let Google take over. <laughs> okay, uh, other question. Hi, this question's for David. I think the IPCC has published that over the past 100 years, the average increase in temperatures 0.8 or so degrees Celsius. Can you talk about how a 0.8 degree increase in average temperature over 100 years is causing this dynamic shift in a climate change and uh, you know melting of glaciers, et cetera, et cetera? And also, there was a big shift in the 60s and 70s where the EPA was pushing that the globe is going to go into a global cooling and over the past, ever since we've moved from global cooling to global warming, how did that transition happen too? Thank you. So let's go to the second one. Uh, looking at observational records back through time, there are these cycles. Interannual variations from one year to another is different. Interdecadal, there's oscillations that happen in the climate system that are decadal, centennial. There are oscillations that occur on 10,000-year timescales, and then the ice ages occur on 100,000-year timescales. So every timescale you can think of, there are oscillations of cooling and warming, and they're all happening in concert. The thing of global warming, if you want to call it that, is the last 150 years have seen, on average, a persistent rise of close to one degree. That's a bias, if you will. It's not, if it was just a waving about, it would just average out to zero. So one should absolutely expect periods of cooling, but when you put CO2 in the air, it's a blanket on the earth, and it's simply more heat. It's the equivalent of turning the sun up, if you will. If you make the sun hotter, the earth gets hotter. Another way to do it is just keep the heat from the sun on the earth. But the climate system, this is not to be walk out of question number one. I've come to the conclusion that the human brain, per se, really doesn't understand the climate system, nor is it. What the human brain is good at is mathematics, physics, and engineering. And basically, we understand certain physical principles, and we build these computer models that have physics in them, and we test these against observations in nature. And basically, we're on a planet that's spinning. It has something called the Coriolis force that makes objects, if you will, like hurricanes, go in circles. That's not obvious. Like, much of the physics we understand with the climate system, we've memorized, we don't actually internally understand. A model is an objective thing that, of the climate system that shows how the planet works. And it's really crazy surprising. I had a graduate student and I said to him, the North Atlantic Ocean is warming, so take your computer model and find out if it affects Greenland. And he ran his computer model and he said, no, there's no effect of the North Atlantic, which has warmed for the last 30 years, on Greenland. Instead, it produced an effect in Antarctica. And he spent four years tracking that down. And when he was finished, it was published in Nature. And it said that changes in the North Atlantic drive a wind pattern that goes around the equator, 
passes through Australia, goes to the jet stream and changes the wind in Antarctica, which changes the ocean circulation, which has led to the warming. There's no way you're going to think, guess that. We see it in nature. The computer model explains it. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, which is my answer to what I perceive as your question, is climate models are very complex. They are becoming better and better, and they're showing us how the climate system works. But it's not intuitive. I don't understand it. I have not met a person who understands it. I don't think I will. Okay. It's good to also know our limitations as we're trying to project and and create the risk assessments and we're trying to project how to move. As you see, that every 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 word we use is all goes back to mitigation and adaptation, understanding the risk so that we can then react. It seems like we're following events. We we've that we've created a pattern and it's really hard to reverse it. In fact, that was one of the questions. Who else has a question? Right now, Roberto. Uh, I don't know for who this question is. It might be a little open. Uh, but my question is, the main economic driver for the UAE is oil. And given the interconnectedness of the environment, I know barrel extracted in Abu Dhabi is then burned in the U.S. and then just continues to be part of this warming cycle. So has there been a concern about how the UAE's oil-based economy will affect the future of the country and how does the country reconcile its economic reality and the possible environmental realities it faces? So, sorry, I didn't get your question right. I, I guess it's like, uh, how, how you mean that the UAE and the oil-based economy can continue in this way? Uh, yeah, given that there are specific threats that the UAE is facing because of the environmental uh, change and rising temperatures, it might be uninhabitable by 2050, I've read in some articles. So basically, so, they, the, what they're producing is causing part of the problem which is also a problem for them. That's for sure. It's, uh, we are serious about, you know, like uh, the, the implication of the, you know, exporting the oil. Even let's say, you know, this is also, you know, like uh, the thinking about how we change the lives here. It's also, you know, part of the benefit for this country. Let's say, you know, like you consume the oil here, then, you know, the, we can export less oil. So that means that, uh, you know, for this country, they don't have uh, you know, enough income. So, uh, you know, trying to promote uh, the efficiency, it's not just only environmental reasons, but still also economic sense. It's like, in a sense, we can kind of, you know, keep exporting the limit, limited amount of the natural resources and the long-term future. Uh, but also, you know, that's, uh, uh, let's say, the part of the reason is why we are talking about uh, climate change. It's we have to invest in the, the future solutions. Then solution cannot make out of nothing. You have to invest. Then the you know, solution might come like uh, you know within 10, 10 years or might be taking uh, 50 years. Or even like a uh, science for the climate change is taking 50, 60 years to, to find out the what exactly happening. So uh, what this country is looking at is not exactly <laughs> what they have to do in the future. It's more like try to kind of, you know, bet on the, you know, innovations or radical future solutions rather than wait and see and what's happening and the oil and running out or, you know, like, a, like what's happening the, to the coal industry. They keep waiting and then, you know, many of the coal, coal companies just bankrupt. And they, they don't have anything to, to do. 
then they are asking under Trump to revive the industry in this way. And uh, what I see here is they, they, you know, not waiting in this way. It, they try to move ahead the trend in a sense. Um, my question is to Professor David, and I sort of want to understand how research and the dynamics of a lot of researchers works out in places like Antarctica, where there are 4,000 researchers working to come to a common goal work. And also I would assume that it's the case in Greenland as well, like who gets to decide who gets to work in highly sensitive areas and how is the interaction among different scientists. And also like in the end, for students and people who want to be informed in this area, what's the credible source that we should look for? Yeah, so it's sort of the dynamics of how research is done in these areas. Very good question. First thought responding to that is, uh, well, first of all, all of the researchers, while researchers want to do research and they compete at some level with one another, there's actually more cooperation than there is competition. The competition comes in actually getting funded. Funded means having a resource that allows you to do research. Greenland, it turns out, is relatively easy to do research in. There are towns, cities, people, helicopters, boats. You just show up, do your work. So Denise and I go to Greenland, and it's a two- or three-week event, and we do, every summer, lots of research. Antarctica, to do the same action, measure the temperature somewhere, it's a five-year event, costs $15 million. To get to Antarctica, you need to have, for our research, we need helicopters. Well, how do you get a helicopter to a remote place in Antarctica? You have to put it in an Air Force plane. You have to build a two-mile ice runway in the middle of Antarctica. To do that, you have to drive, tractors have to drive across Antarctica to build it. It takes five years just to get that done, and then you can show up and do a measurement. So nobody should undermess, and things break in Antarctica for some reason a lot. It's, it's a difficult environment. I can share one personal note. When I go there, I show up, and usually you spend three weeks just waiting to go from A to B. Most people are used to getting on an airplane, and if it's delayed an hour, they're upset. Antarctic delays for your each flight is two to three weeks. And it's really wearing on a person, and it's very difficult. It's very expensive. Icebreakers cost a billion dollars, and the U.S. icebreaker is going out of commission, and who's stepping up with the money to do it? So... The answer is, not to make it sound negative, but there are challenges there. And I think the science community have to speak out about the issue. It's real in the case of sea level and that it requires resource. So a question to Professor David. So regarding the complex system of climate modeling, so Professor Sophia mentioned the word climate tipping point or something. Can you explain on that? Sophia and I were talking about tipping point earlier. Maybe, Sophia, you might want to comment. What I take from it is, right now, the glacier we're talking about in this case, a very real thing, is sitting on a bump, a bump on the seafloor. You can imagine the seafloor is not perfectly flat, but the glacier is sitting on a bump. If it's pushed off that bump, according to what we discussed earlier, it's going to retreat all the way back to the South Pole. So I guess, to me, that's a, a tipping point. Is that kind of what you got from that? Well, yes, we were trying to talk to each other and trying to, I was actually using my hands like I did here 
to try to understand what does that mean? Because we would say the word retreat, and I, I thought it was going away from Antarctica. But then David told me, oh, well, that would have happened, except that the seafloor is in the exact opposite, is moving in the exact opposite direction. But whatever the case is, it's sitting on, it doesn't have anything else to hit for a thousand miles. So it's going to be floating for a thousand miles. And as it floats, you can understand in layman's terms, it moves around, it, it shakes around, it breaks. The more it breaks, the more vulnerable it is to being melted from warmer water. The more it melts, not only does it disappear, but it also leads to the sea uh, water rising. So we think of tipping points as a point of no return. In this particular instance, the tipping point is the moment it gets unstuck because there's nothing to stop it from melting. In time, there's no obstacle. There's no physical obstacle to stop it because it's just floating there. It's not on land to be stuck in the land that will make it stop from melting and causing the sea level to rise. So that in that particular case, that's the vulnerability and the tipping point. Right, and what you said in one minute there was six decades of research. And it's also what you were saying about this science is not so complicated that it can't be shared and understood outside of science, which is when you talk about silos, you're exactly right. So there is a problem. Also in the U.S., I'm from Canada, so in the U.S. I still haven't got my head around the fact that you don't have to answer a question. And it really is weird. In the political context, I can ask you a question. Like here I can ask you a question. And in our science community, if you don't answer me, people are going to stop talking to you. If you give me a wrong answer, we're going to stop talking to you. But somehow, in politics, you're allowed to do that. And I think it's actually okay in politics to... But not when science is what you're discussing. And that I see that. And it just, it's really weird. I only see it in the U.S., Meaning the... That I can ask you a scientific question and you can give me a wrong answer. And, but it should stop. The conversation has to stop. Well, part of it is, I think, what a lot of people from the audience, especially the students, have been saying, that there, we, we need to also grasp the difference between what we know as fact and what we feel that we know. Because we've moved also into an era of we think we feel, it's our gut that's telling us. But when you talk to David and he explains it in such crystal clear terms, it really, I still, you know, I'm, my heart is still sinking, but at least I know what I'm, I, I'm understanding now. It makes, science makes things sound clearer. If not absolutely certain, at least we have an idea. But now with this combination, I think that that's a lot of the um, origin of the confusion. People are answering falsely also, and there's no fact-checking, and anybody can say whatever they want, and the message leaves somebody's lips and goes all around the globe. I don't know, there's contagion. It contaminates everybody's thinking. They used to do that with superstition and uh, you know old wives' tales, but now uh, I guess it's, it's it's entered other realms. Other questions, final questions, so we can wrap up. Sure. Thanks. This has been an amazing panel. You mentioned mapping along the coastal areas and not having that information. 
Is that an opportunity for citizen science projects to get involved where you make this information available and engage a broader group of citizens in collecting that data? And I think that would be absolutely awesome and doable. It's not so crazy technical. If, if there was a, like a crowd of people here or elsewhere that wanted to do this, this is a very small amount of money, a few million dollars. The data sets are available and released. And uh, what a great project for someone to really get behind it and push. Just it, that's, it would be a, a very substantial, notable contribution. There lies the opportunity for NYU Abu Dhabi. Is anybody listening from the administration? We should tackle that. We have so many great students in science that are ready, a lot of them in some of my classes. And I think this should be our last question because we do want to actually go to the center of the campus and have the opportunity to watch the performance because I do think that it speaks in so many different ways to what we've been talking about. Um, hi. So clearly we've seen the effects of sea level rise and global warming on our modern day world. And uh, I was just wondering, nowadays our modern day lifestyle results with a lot of problems. And to what extent can we change the way we live to approach reducing sea level rise and global warming? Because surely, no matter what we do, nature will prevail. So to what extent are, do we have control over the modern day world? And because can, can the world really adapt to our lifestyle or should we adapt to the world? Because either ways, the world will continue changing and which can change faster? That's a great question. I would like to hear your answer. Not right now, but I'm, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, I think we could do a much better job of imagining the future. And I think we could do a much better job of imagining breaking apart the status quo. Mostly because I think the status quo is terrible design. I think the status quo is designed really badly. It's incredibly inefficient. And I think a lot of that has to do with natural resources, our use of energy. You know, I could go on. So I, so I think we could just do a better job of letting go of some, what I think are small scale, but are really massive like geopolitical entanglements, but I think are small scale in the scheme of things. One thing I mentioned in a panel, panel a couple of days ago, I'm, I'm a big fan of a thinker called Buckminster Fuller, and he's a sort of a polymath, and he sort of posed a sort of a very small question, which he didn't pursue very much, which is, you know, why do we still have national borders? Maybe we should let go of the national borders, because it's bad design. And that's one way in to thinking about the question. Democracy is an idea that started 2,500 years ago and it lasted for about 40 years. And, uh, and then it fell away for a long time before it was sort of raised like Lazarus 2,000 years later and then has sort of proliferated. Do we have the best sort of updated form of democracy still? Is there, is, does media, is our interconnectedness with the internet um, and in other ways and, and climate change, does it, sort of demand that we globally organize ourselves in a different way. We sort of have these old institutions, right? The idea of the UN, for example. I'm not sure if the UN is really a contemporary organ way of organization anymore. Maybe there's a way of imagining a different way. And I know people at COP22, for example, are trying to do that. I mean, we're trying to do that, but we're taking a lot of things for as givens. In We're only allowing ourselves to imagine just so far as opposed to really big, because that's scary, because then people get really freaked out. <laughs> and and that's why we don't want to imagine too far. We just want to imagine, we want to adapt slow. And the thing is people, you've heard the saying, people change slowly. And that's what we used to think about the environment. And it doesn't change that slow. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, we've accelerated, it's, it's moving. I mean, it's like Usain Bolt. 
right now. The last 350 years is like the fastest environment in history. And the question is, is can we adapt quickly in a response? Can we also move faster than we allow ourselves or we give ourselves credit for? Um, that's a great question. I have a four-year-old daughter and, I, and it has given me a lot of perspective in the sense that actually, oh, I, I see that, that I actually, thinking on a four-year time cycle, you know, let's say for the elections in the United States, it's a pretty bad amount of time to plan. You know, we, I'd like to make a plan that's a little bit longer than that. I would like us all to make plans on based on good information that are a lot longer than four years. And um, because I hope, yeah, because my four-year-old, because <laughs> I've, I've, now I have a different understanding of what a four-year time span is. So that's an attempt at your, to answer your question. Does anybody else like to jump in? Yes, my, myself working on, you know, these lifestyle issues and for some time. And then, you know, people asking I mean, how, how difficult and changing your lifestyle is. And one maybe good example is, you know, this audience is maybe too young, but if you are over 30 years old, 10 years ago, how many people did you eat sushi? Yeah? Probably, you know, not many people eat, eat sushi before. It's, it's impossible to eat and raw fish. But now it's everyone loves to eat this. This is, you know, maybe we can think in this way, you know, like people using smartphone nowadays. 10 years ago, there was no smartphone. So somehow this logic can be utilized for the you know, environmental lifestyles, how we can promote you know, more green lifestyles using you know, other examples and how we can convince you know, changing, for instance, eating stuff is very difficult. You know, that you get used to eat certain things and you don't like other things, but you can change it. So let's think about how we can use, you know, like um, do recycling and how we can do more, you know, like greener lifestyles and uh, in, in a similar way. And that's, we can create some imaginations. Okay, I, this is a great way to end the conversation today. I think we should remain hopeful. Uh, individual responsibility is part of the solution. But remember, we're also living in an interconnected world. So we shouldn't put ourselves in a silo either. So we should, our individual responsibility should also go hand in hand with our connectivity. Because otherwise, it's just going to be everybody's personal little problem and it won't have that effect, that we, the tsunami effect. Now we can use tsunami, I think, safely, which we really w want to achieve. And another wonderful lesson, I think, just from the panel and from the audience, is something that we, we should also point out to, is that it, it takes all kinds of people and all kinds of knowledge to move forward. And that's why we encourage our students to be polymaths, not to be learning only in a silo. We want them to be artists and scientists and social scientists so that the, and, and writers. Because as we said, communicating between the sciences and the arts, it takes a whole vocabulary, but we should all be able to do this better. Thank you all very, very much. And I invite you all to come and watch this wonderful performance. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. <laughs> <laughs>